Welcome to the Quest Express, your passport to immersive travel experiences and cozy conversations. For curious explorers who understand the art of slow travel, we're your go-to podcast. Every few weeks, we touch the heartbeat of a new city where we chat with artists, innovators, historians, and entrepreneurs who make each city come alive. The Quest Express is not just a podcast. It's your ultimate slow travel companion. It's an invitation to begin your own quest. Our guest this week is Frank Perez, also known as French Quarter Frank. He's a writer, teacher, tour guide, and public speaker who also serves as the executive director of the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana. His latest book, Rainbow Fleur de Lis, Essays on Queer New Orleans History, is forthcoming from the University Press of Mississippi. He is a wealth of knowledge, and I know you'll enjoy this week with him. Tell me how long you've been in New Orleans and your very first confrontation with New Orleans as a rich cultural city? Well, my earliest memories of New Orleans were as a child. I was actually born and raised in Baton Rouge, which is about an hour away. But my mother was from this area and we had family here. So growing up, we were always in New Orleans, you know, on holidays and a lot in the summer and on weekends. And one of my earliest memories was my mother taking me to the State Museum on Jackson Square at the Cabildo. And I remember just falling in love with history. And she bought me a a picture book on New Orleans history. And that's where my love of history really began. Uh, And so I've always felt connected to the city. You know, I don't know if reincarnation is real, but if it is, I've certainly lived here before. I actually moved back to the city after a career in academia in 2008. But even while I was away, I would I would come as often as I could. I'm hearing that a lot, leaving and coming back, like it doesn't really let you leave. So talk to me a little bit about you do everything. You're a writer, historian, speaker, tour guide, a true Renaissance man. So let's just mention your website now in case anyone wants to check it out later. Yeah, that's uh, frenchquarterfrank.com. And on that site, I have more information about all the things that I do and I'm involved with. It's a great resource for anybody interested in learning about what to do in New Orleans or about me and what I do. Excellent. So let's connect the dots between the picture book and when everything started crystallizing for you and you decided to turn your passion into full-time. What happened in between? So when I went to school, my uh, my original college degree, my bachelor's degree was in, believe it or not, criminal justice. And I worked very briefly in that field and decided I did not like it. Uh, That's a whole nother podcast. But uh, I decided to go back to school and I got a master's degree in, uh, in English. And upon completing a master's degree, I decided to go into academia. So I Went to another school to work on my PhD, which I never completed. I got halfway through my dissertation and got sidetracked. So I never did earn that. But um, I became an English professor for quite a number of years in Texas, of all places, which is very different than New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I was there for 10 years and eventually just realized I needed to come home. And when I came back to New Orleans, I worked part-time teaching English at a couple of universities. Teaching part-time doesn't pay very well. Right. 
And so I got involved in the tourism industry, which seemed to be a natural fit for me. My interest in queer history uh, really began to blossom around 2009 or 10 or so. Mm. Uh, I've always been interested in, in history, but I really didn't get super interested in queer history until, until about that time. Mm. So what would surprise us that we don't know about that? Just a, a few things that you learned. About queer history? Yeah. Well, the first thing I learned was that in 2009, there wasn't a lot of it out there. Because I began to search for materials to read, and there just really wasn't anything out there. And I guess somebody once said, whoever gets the vision gets the task. And so I decided to begin researching that. My best friend, who happens to be a bartender, come to think of it, a lot of my friends are bartenders. And I, he's interested in history as well. So he and I decided to write a book on the history of the bar he worked at, which is called Cafe Lafitte in Exile, which is the oldest uh, continually operating gay bar in the United States, certainly the oldest one in New Orleans. And we just began interviewing old timers, many of whom have since passed away, and recorded their stories and wrote that narrative up. And of course, we had to contextualize the story of the bar's history in a larger context. And so when we published in Exile in... 2012, it was the first book really published on queer history in New Orleans. And there have been many since, not many, there have been a handful since then. But that's kind of what got us interested and started in it. And when that book came out, the publishers, owners and publishers of a local queer magazine called Ambush, asked me if I would write a column on local queer history for that paper, that magazine. And I immediately jumped on that. And that kind of spurred me on into further research. You know, writing a book, you can drag out for years. But when you have a column deadline every couple of weeks, you kind of have to get it done. And so that's really how I got into queer history. I just began interviewing people and doing primary research in archival repositories, a lot of arrest records. And what I discovered is that a lot of queer history, whether it's lesbian or gay men or trans or whatever, is still in the closet because for so many years until very recently being queer was not something people wanted to document because to do so could mean that you would be arrested or fired or put in jail or put in a mental asylum and in a lot of cases led to suicide it just was not okay to be queer mm -hmm. and so documenting that life was not something people wanted to do and so a lot of queer history remains in the closet everything i just said also kind of led to the creation of a nonprofit organization that i work with called the lgbt plus archives project of louisiana which is a federally recognized uh nonprofit that works to chronicle queer history in louisiana and the reason that came about was because one of the gentlemen i interviewed for the for that book that i mentioned was an old activist named Stuart Butler, and he has since passed away. But in the course of writing and researching that book, I interviewed him and became friends with him. I guess it had to be 2012. He called me and about a dozen other people together that he knew were interested in queer history, called us to his house, and he showed us a vast array of uh, banker's boxes that he had arranged, about 30 of them. And we're like, Stuart, what, what, what's in those boxes? And he started showing us all this paperwork from all the organizations he's been involved in, agendas from board meetings, the minutes from various meetings from political groups, 
posters for drag shows, you name it, membership rosters of various organizations. He just kept every scrap of paper associated with his work as an activist. And he said, you know, I'm 80, north of 80 years old. What's going to happen to this stuff when I die? I don't want it to be thrown out. And so he challenged us to begin thinking about that. And, and it was a good question because there were a lot of other people in that same situation, right? A lot of older uh, LGBT folks who maybe don't have families or kids that have some of this material, whether it's a shoebox or a larger collection in their attic or wherever, we began to wonder what's going to happen to that. You know, if the family at best is not going to know that it's important and just throw it out. And at worst, if they're super religious, you know, they'll burn it and have an exorcism. And we decided that we need to do something to raise awareness about preserving this history. And so we met at Stewart's house for about a year just kind of brainstorming once a month on what we could do. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel. We all had day jobs. We weren't trained as library people or archivists. So we decided to create this organization that would reach out to the community and say, hey, if you've got anything that needs to be preserved, let us help you find a home for it. And so in the last 10 years or so, we have evolved into a statewide collective. And in since 2012, we have facilitated the donation of major collections to all sorts of institutions across the state. I'm talking about the state museum, talking about private archives at universities, private foundations, public libraries, you name it. And so we've worked really hard at cultivating a good relationship with curators, archivists, librarians all across the state. Mm. And so in the course of doing all that, you know, we keep track of where everything is. So when Researchers contact us, whether they be podcasters or documentary filmmakers or graduate students or writers or whoever. They reach out to us all the time and say, I'm interested in ABC. What do you got? We're able to say, well, here's what's available. Here's where it is. Here's who you need to talk to. So we're an invaluable resource for researchers, and we've been very, very instrumental in the production of a lot of uh, primary source material and, and works in that regard. We also have a pretty robust website with a lot of content on it as well. I guess the biggest misconception about us is that we have our own archival repository. We do not. We're not a museum. Mm -hmm. We're not a repository. Mm -hmm. But we know where everything is. We do public programming as well to, to raise awareness about queer history. And, and all that really stemmed from the fact that in 2009, I wanted to learn about New Orleans queer history, and nobody had done that. And I ended up writing that book, and that just kind of opened all sorts of doors. Mm. And now I'm, I'm, they tell me I'm kind of like the gay historian of New Orleans, which I never set out to be, <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a role I'm happy to fulfill. Yeah, yeah. Is there some place, if anyone wants to buy that book, is it available on Amazon? All my books, I've written several books since then. They're all available. You can get information on that at FrenchQuarterFrank.com. Okay, perfect. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit, just for fun, I'm, we'll do this in a few moments to do a live mini tarot reading. But before we do that, I would love to, if you just kind of like in a nutshell, like maybe five minutes, talk to me about the beginning to end story of New Orleans, because it is so deeply layered and rich with so many oh, different, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, beyond, right? It is. I, I'm happy to do that. You may have to tell me to stop because I can okay. talk for hours about this. Okay. I think it's important to start by mentioning that before New Orleans existed, that we know there were indigenous native people in this area that we now call New Orleans. This area even had a name. It was called Bobancha. 
And Bobacho is a Choctaw word that means place of many tongues or languages. And that is because on the banks of the Mississippi River, where the French Market and Café du Monde now stand, the natives would set up a seasonal trading post when the river wasn't flooding in the spring. And this trading post serviced small indigenous nations, probably 45, 50 of them from all over the Gulf South. I think it's important to acknowledge the indigenous heritage. And of course, before the European colonizers arrived, indigenous peoples all over the, the Western Hemisphere were anything but sexually binary. I mean, they, they embraced queerness. And, and that's a whole other topic that I could speak an hour about. But in any event, Bobancho was the name of this place we now call New Orleans. The city of New Orleans was founded by the French in 1718 by a French-Canadian from Montreal named Bienville, who, by the way, lived into his 80s and never married. Just saying, we don't know. <laughs> we remain a French colony up until 1762. At that point, France is about to lose a war with Great Britain, and the King of France doesn't want Louisiana to become British. So he gives Louisiana away to his cousin, who happens to be the King of Spain. And so we become Spanish. And these two cousin kings were of the House of Bourbon, which is where Bourbon Street gets its name. It has nothing to do with the whiskey, although that seems to work pretty well nowadays. <laughs> wow. Okay. And yeah. So we're a Spanish colony for a while. We briefly go back to being French, and then the Louisiana Purchase occurs. And the, without going down the rabbit hole, I need to mention the Haitian Revolution, because in the 18th century, late 18th century, the most profitable colony in the French Empire was in the island of Saint-Domingue in the Caribbean. It's a very, very lucrative sugar-producing colony. But in 1791 or so, there was a slave revolt on Saint-Domingue, and it lasted about 12 years, but the slaves were successful in overthrowing their French oppressors. And when they became free, they declared themselves the Republic of Haiti. And when that happens, Napoleon Bonaparte gives up his dreams of a North American empire and is much more amenable to selling not only New Orleans, but Louisiana. And then you have the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, where we become American. But because of that slave revolt, there was also a massive influx of Haitians or people from Saint-Domingue into New Orleans. And so it's also important to remember that throughout our history up until the Civil War, or well, really before the Civil War, but especially during the colonial period, we had involuntary immigration in the form of enslaved people being kidnapped and sent here. And so that's a big, big part of our history. And the African slaves, enslaved people who were sent here, didn't come from just one area. It was several areas, different people groups, all of whom had their own language, their own culinary traditions, their own musical traditions, their own religious traditions. And so there's a lot of different influences being thrown into the gumbo pot. You know, everybody loves to say gumbo is the easy metaphor, and it is. People say America is a melting pot, but America is really more like a tossed salad, right? You got tomatoes over mm. here, cucumbers over there. In a gumbo pot, everything really does melt and blend into each other. And that's what you have in New Orleans. That's what makes our culture so complex. So in addition to all the different, the Senegalese, the Gambians, the, the Congolese, all the different African groups that came, you also have French. You have Germans, you have Irish, more recently you have Vietnamese, a lot of Croatians. So the multicultural nature of New Orleans is so complex, we could probably spend an hour just talking about that. But mm -hmm. Louisiana Purchase occurs, 1803, 100 years later, the French Quarter, which is so famous, was actually mostly Sicilian. According to the 1910 census, 80% of the residents of the French Quarter were Sicilian immigrants. Interesting. It was called Little Palermo 
people don't realize that, but we have an incredibly rich Sicilian and, and to a larger extent, Italian influence in New Orleans. But that, that's 300 plus years in, in a few minutes. Wow. So let's give a couple minutes, a little nod to one of my favorite acquired tastes. And it was an acquired taste, but I love it now. Nothing makes me joyful like listening to jazz. So oh. what about the jazz? How did this all happen? Okay. So the development of jazz was a direct result of the city's very complex, multi-layered culture. So, and it goes back to slavery. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the laws regarding slavery in Louisiana were a little bit different than in the rest of the American South. An example of that is that by law on Sundays, enslaved people had to have the day off. They were required to go to mass in the morning, but they had the afternoon to do whatever they wanted to do. And so what they would do is they would often gather at a place which became known as Congo Square. And in Congo Square, uh, on Sundays, they would play music, they would dance. It was like a festival atmosphere. They would actually sell goods and their services in order to earn money to buy their freedom if they were enslaved. But it was a lot of free people of color as well. But anyway, that African folk music was important in the development of jazz because African folk music had been outlawed in the rest of the American South, but not so much here in New Orleans. And so African folk music has a lot of similarities to the features of what we now call jazz music, right? Syncopation, call and response, lack of harmony, improvisation, so forth and so on, blue notes. So all that is very instrumental. What happens is and this is something I think a lot of your listeners will be surprised to learn, is that in the 19th century, New Orleans was the opera capital of North America. Everybody went to the opera. First opera house ever built in North America was in the French Quarter. First opera ever performed in North America was in the French Quarter. So everybody went to the opera. And so opera represents classical European music, which blends with African folk music, and the result of which is eventually ragtime and now what we call jazz. Now, there were other influences as well. We're a port city, so there are international influences constantly flowing in and out of the city, which means languages from all around the world, right? We also had, after the Civil War, the Union Army occupied New Orleans until 1877, and they were very fond of marching up and down the street with their brass bands, right? So the brass element is introduced there. Mm. It's, it's a very complicated story, but at its core, jazz is the result of the blending of African folk music and classical European opera. Yeah. Oh, I get the chills. What a happy accident. 